Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the lovely podcast, The Endurance of Labor Laws. I am your lovely host, Leslie Sullivan, and today is episode 52. But first of all, I want to give a big shout out to my listeners. So a big shout out to Texas, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Virginia, New York, Oregon, and Florida. And today we're going to take a look at the California School Employees Association. So let me get over to that lovely source because this is a neat one. And here's why. First of all, I love California. You guys are awesome. I love how the numbers are slowly growing that more and more people from California are listening in to these podcasts. Um I think that's a really good thing because I like to see where all people are from. And it's really neat to see when people are from other countries as well. I really love to see that. But in regards to this uh labor union It's really neat because it goes back to 1927 and they have a very interesting history and there are things that I like and things that I don't like. So let's go ahead and get started on this one. First of all, I love their logo. It looks like a blue shield that has a bear on it. And um sorry, I'm about losing my voice a little bit. I love that because um one of the state symbols uh for California is a bear. I think it's actually on their flag. I could be wrong. But they they have an emblem of a bear. as part of that. So that tells me that this goes back a long time. So let's go ahead and get started on this one. This is the California School Employees Association. Um it was founded August 9th, 1927. They are headquartered in San Jose, California. They have locations only in the United States. That's really nice. They have 248,000 members. Matthew Shane Dishman is their association president and they have affiliations with the AFL-CIO. So they're not affiliated with Canada in any way shape or form because it's not an international union. It's truly just a United States union. So that's really good to see that. So it says here, the California School Employees Association, also known as CSEA, is the largest classified school employees labor union in the United States. CSEA represents more than 230,000 public employees in California. That is a lot. That's a large population there. It says CSEA was formed in 1927 by a determined group of Oakland custodians who saw the need to gain protections for themselves and other classified employees. Through this initial determination, CSEA proved to be an organization that would stand the test of time. Let's see here goes on to say CSEA consists of 10 geographic areas with each area represented by an area director elected by members in that area. The area directors serve on the board of directors along with five additional executive members of the board, each elected at the annual CSEA conference. The current CSEA president is Matthew Shane Dishman. The 10 statewide areas contain 100 regions, with each region represented by a regional representative appointed by the association president. The regional representatives serve the association president for one year. Regional representatives also serve on many important committees at the president's request. CSEA is a is a democratically controlled organization with members in more than 750 local chapters. Chapters elect officers, bargain collectively with their employer and implement CSEA programs locally. Chapters also send delegates to the annual CSEA conference to discuss and democratically decide resolutions and policies concerning the future direction for CSEA. Executive Director Keith Pace heads the professional staff at headquarters in San Jose, California. Other services are housed in San Jose headquarters, 
are accounting, communications, executive, field operations, human resources, information systems, legal, member benefits, and office services. Now, the reason why they have so much under their umbrella with that is because they have so many members. So they're basically trying to be very organized, which I think that's a great thing to do. Because the more organized you are, the less disorganized you are. So that's really good to see that. So then it says, CSEA maintains a professional labor relations staff. The labor relations representatives perform a range of professional services working out of field offices to better serve local membership. That I agree with because that way they know what their members want and need while they're out there working their jobs. Because sometimes with unions we've seen where unions don't always listen to their members. It's just a power trip. This one, it's not looking like a power trip so far, but that can always change. CSEA also maintains a professional government relations staff. The governmental relations staff is responsible for passing legislation favorable to the interests of classified employees. The governmental relations office is located adjacent to the state capitol in Sacramento. That concerns me that they have connections to the state capitol because more than likely they're trying to infiltrate and manipulate legislation, and I don't like that because what they try and do, what we've seen in the past with labor unions and trade unions, is they put their job ahead of everybody else's, and that's not right because we're all equals in the United States. If you are a citizen, you have equal rights. If you're not a citizen, sorry, you don't have those rights because you're here illegally. So, well, unless you have a visa, it's like a temporary visa, but even then, you're not a U.S. citizen. But my thing is this, if you are a U.S. citizen, you have equal rights, especially under labor laws. Those are basic and fundamental to the United States. So, unfortunately, what labor unions and trade unions have been doing and are doing They have been trying to get it so that their labor is seen as more important than other people. So they're basically trying to take over jurisdictions within their trade, within their craft, and within their employment arena, I guess you could say, within their field of expertise. And that's wrong because what they're trying to do is they're trying to squish or squash out uh, competition. And that happens a lot in the public sector, and that's one reason why they don't like the private sector, even though it's typically the private sector that is funding all these through tax dollars and things like that. So they're kind of not always appreciative of what all funds are raised in the private sector because without the private sector, the United States would not have an economy. We wouldn't have services. We wouldn't have businesses. The majority of people would not have jobs because the majority of people work in the private sector, not the public sector. Now, there are some people that think, oh, well, we should just all work for the government. I don't think so. Uh, that is really corrupt and wrong. And the way that you can prove that is just look at communist China and the USSR, the Soviet Union, before it became Russia. Those two countries and economies, they control your labor big time. It's not as, India is not as bad as them in terms of the caste system, but with communism and with what's going on, um, what was going on in the Soviet Union, It was really bad because the government decided your fate. They decided what job you would have for the rest of your life. That's how jobs work in the public sector. Whereas in the private sector, you have way more freedom to be basically who God called you to be. And you have that destiny before you and that you can fulfill your destiny every day of your life as long as you are willing to do it. That's what's, that is what makes America great is that you have the freedom to choose your occupation You really do have the freedom to, to decide your future. Regardless of what hardships you have, you can still go in that direction, whereas in a communist country such as China or the Soviet Union, which, again, the Soviet Union is not, uh, is not around anymore. It's just Russia. But even so, 
those two countries are excellent examples of what you do not want in your country, much less your economy, much less your labor force, your workforce. Because they basically squash and kill jobs and they just suck the money out of the market. An example of that is with the Soviet Union, the USSR, when they they tried to take well they didn't try. They did take over everything and millions of people were starving and I don't know if it was millions but hundreds of thousands of their citizens in the Soviet Union died from starvation because of what the government did so they tried to force everybody to be in certain jobs but it wasn't always their expertise so then you didn't always have the best and brightest people doing the job that they were doing so their economy took a hit they had inflation all the time and their people suffered from it Uh, dramatically and it's that's kind of the nicest way I can put it with that. So then it goes on to say on August 9, 1927, a group of 9 men and 1 woman from Oakland assembled for CSEA's first conference. During the 3-day meeting, they established a framework for the union and set an agenda of process that continued to elevate the status of classified employees for the next 3 quarters of a century. From the capital to the bargaining table, CSEA has pursued the interests of classified employees up and down the state, transforming non-certified support staff into classified professionals and respected partners in the education community. Throughout the years, the faces have changed, but classified employees have remained dedicated to one goal: helping the students in our public schools and colleges. Now, I don't really believe that, and here's why: because a lot of these unions, they don't care. what happens to the education of the kids an example of this and they also don't care about the safety of children so an example of them not caring about the education of kids is whenever you have uh, labor unions especially the teachers unions that they go on strike and then they don't even show up to work but yet the students are guaranteed a public education if they are enrolled in a public school they are guaranteed a public education and i'm not talking necessarily about um colleges because colleges you're paying for that as an individual whether you you get a grant or a loan or you pay cash but in terms of like i would say pre-k to 12th grade if a kid is enrolled in those classes those the those those not professors they're they're not professors those teachers technically are required by state law to show up and teach because their monies are paid by tax dollars Whereas college professors, yes, they get Pell grants, federal grants, all this stuff that I don't agree with because that's that's federal tax dollars as well. But professors are supposed to be paid wages based on the tuition that the students pay. So it's one of those things that you know there are teachers that they just throw a hissy fit over stuff and don't show up to work. So then our students, our children, are not being educated, but yet they are supposed to be educated. So basically in those situations they say they claim they say they claim uh, that they, uh, well they claim that they care about the students and they they're doing it for the benefit of the kids but they're really not. They're just doing it for the benefit of themselves, which is a form of greed. And technically when they don't show up to work, that's a form of retaliation against the taxpayer because it's the taxpayer that's paying their wages and their salaries. So they need to show up and work. Another example is in regards to um school violence and school shootings. One of the things that some of these uh, labor unions and trade unions associate with education on all levels whether it's lower education or higher education or teachers union, they are not for practicing um intruder drills or um 
fire drills, not fire drills, shooter drills basically. And I find that very odd because I would think that if you want your teachers and your staff to be prepared if ever there is a shooter, they need to practice that and also you need to have the students practice it too, like practice taking shelter. Because that's what we did in high school because this was after Columbine because Columbine kind of shocked I think the entire planet, but especially the United States. But what we as the students really appreciate was that the teachers took it seriously. like very seriously after that. I mean, they always took our safety seriously before then, but when those school shootings started happening, you know, they really took the initiative and, and started practicing stuff like they created a new policy basically to help protect the students and the staff. But unfortunately, some of these labor unions and trade unions that are in, uh, involved in the educational system, some of them don't want teachers to practice that. They don't want them to be aware of what to do if there is an intruder. And then also they're not teaching the students, the kids what to do. Children can be very fearful and when the adults don't know what to do, it's pandemonium for kids. So one of the great things that I really liked about doing those shooter drills or intruder drills was that it created this sense of I don't know, confidence and not being worried and that we have a plan. If something were ever to happen, It doesn't matter because we have a plan, we have a plan of action, our teachers are trained, the students know what to do. And see here's the thing, like in Oklahoma, I can't speak for other states, but in Oklahoma where I'm from, we practice fire drills, we practice tornado drills. I mean, we practice other things that are in regards to to health and human safety and security as well, but for some reason, some of these trade unions and labor unions within the educational system they don't think it's warranted to practice for an actual livable very fierce threat from someone that could come in with a with some type of artillery weapon and just kill people i mean storms are not the only thing that can kill people so whenever they make statements like they're how they word it helping the students at our public schools and colleges i don't believe that I just don't believe that because what I find is that they make those statements just to kind of fool the public, like to fool the masses. Hey, we're here to help students. You know, we the teachers are here for your kids. No, they're not. I've witnessed that firsthand. I mean, that that's just that's sad because it, especially with our public schools. Now, I don't know if private schools are under any type of jurisdiction in terms of the education department or these labor unions or trade unions. But from what I understand with private schools, they are way better run and I know they have a way better education because I've said this in a previous podcast where when I went to um college, I could tell in my classes who had been to private school and who had been to public school because the private school kids were like one or two years ahead in curriculum. but yet they were forced to take these other classes with us to like quote unquote have a well-rounded college education which which that's just a bs line excuse my language that's just a line that the universities use to make more money off of students and increase student loan debt because universities make bank off of students off their debt if all these kids would pay cash guess what the universities would probably go out of business because even if they say they're not for profit they are totally for profit because in order to stay in business they have to declare a profit they have to have some sort of monies be there in order to pay their bills 
and have monies to continue on into the future. So I'm not always I don't always believe it when um scholastic institutions say they're non-profit or not for profit. I just roll my eyes because it's such a scam. And I'm right there with you in terms of falling for it. I fell for it for years. I was like, "Oh, non-profits are great. Not-for-profit schools are great." And then you start hearing about what's been really going on behind the scenes and that they actually are for profit. That really concerns me because I think they should just be honest about it. Because you see, here's the thing: when these schools are not honest about whether they are for profit or non-profit, but yet they have that title of non-profit, when they're not really honest about their integrity and how they run their schools, how is that any different when you go to a car dealership and the car salesman doesn't really tell you the price of the car? That's what it's like. It's dishonest. And actually, um, if a uh, what's it called? If a car salesman were to lie to you about the price of the car and then you're applying for a loan and then you don't really know what you're getting into that's technically I don't know if it's a felony but they can get in trouble big time about that I may mean, definitely warrant an audit I mean I'm not the police in that I don't know all the ins and outs with car dealerships in that respect but my point is this if it's dishonest for a car dealership to behave that way then it's also dishonest for these non-profit or not-for-profit schools to behave that way where it's like they don't really want the students to know what they're being charged because they don't want people to know how much money they are actually making and not only are they making bank off the students they're making bank off international students and they're also getting uh federal grant money When you hear about federal grant money, that's our money, the taxpayers. That's money that's being taken out of our paychecks, being given to these quote-unquote higher education buildings or facilities or organizations to I guess help them out. And I'm like, look, if they can't afford stuff, then they shouldn't be in business. And also what they do is they get our tax dollars by claiming to do all this research. So whenever you see a research study that's been published and it's from a university, just know that you paid for that. It's not all private funds. You paid for that the taxpayer. So it's almost like you paid to go there, but you didn't even get a chance to go there and get a degree. Cuz they get millions of dollars of our tax dollars. These colleges that when you hear the word higher education, that's what they're referring to as the colleges. So it's it's very much it, it's stuff that's hidden that I don't think should be hidden. I'm not against colleges doing research and and things of that nature. That's wonderful. They do great many things with that, but I think when it comes to putting the taxpayer on the hook for every little thing and then they're making all this profit off a of student loan debt, that's double dipping. That's not right. It almost reminds me of these payday loan companies. They double dip on people all the time with with real shady high interest rates and things like that. I mean, if it's bad for a payday loan company company to behave the way they do, then I don't get how these colleges act like this. Because we have tremendous student loan debt in the United States. Tremendous. It is unacceptable. Like public school to go to public school for college used to be cheap. Now it's getting almost as expensive as private school. That's insane. That makes no sense to me. So whenever they say, whenever these organizations say they're helping the students, I, I don't really buy that because the proof is in the pudding. All you have to do is look at our national debt, 
Look at how many people still have student loan debt. Look at how many people can't pay their debt. Look at how many people are unemployed. And then also look at how many people have all the student loan debt and it just follows them everywhere for years because they can't pay it off. They have a hard time finding a, a good paying job, you know, that that can help pay off all this debt. Well, here's the thing. A lot of kids are promised that they will get these high paying jobs if they go to college and take on all this debt, but then once they graduate, a lot of these kids can't find work. And then when they do find work, it's peanuts compared to what they actually owe, quote unquote, the university and or the lender that they that they accepted a loan from. So it's kind of like it kind of reminds me of, of a horse track race. Like I've been to some horse track races and they can be fun, but they also make me nervous because there is a lot of shady people that go to the horse races. You got to be careful careful where you sit, where you stand, and make sure that you are in charge of your money there. And you have to be really careful like who's behind your shoulder when you're placing a bet. But it kind of reminds me like in regards to these universities and um these lenders and how they collect money, they almost remind me of bookies. Like a bookie that shakes you down for money. You know, say for example, you placed a lot of money on a horse and it lost. And then you can't pay your loans. Well, guess what they do? They send a bookie out to uh, basically like a loan shark and they shake you down for money. Well, if it's illegal and immoral to do that to people like at a a race track of some sort, then how is it legal for universities to ruin people's credit for long periods of time? And these are students that are graduating, we even students that don't graduate. Some students have to drop out drop out of school for various reasons, but even when they drop out drop out, they still have all this debt. So then they get hounded by debt collectors. And then another thing, whenever they do get a job, let's say for example, you know, you, you claim single status on your 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 tax return, you know, your uh, your W4 when you're applying for a job. And single status doesn't necessarily mean that you're single. You can be married and file single, but it just means that more is taken out of your check. So, let's say for example, you file single and you are expecting a refund. You know, when you file your taxes, well, if you don't pay off your student loan debt, they they have authorized, the federal government has authorized for whoever you owe money to in terms of your student loan debt, they have authorized for your tax return to be taken away from you, your 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 refund, your tax return refund. I don't agree with that. Because those are your tax dollars that are supposed to come back to you, but the federal government to me that's stealing. Cuz a lot of people need that money to survive. If they could pay off their debt, they would. So stealing from their income tax return the the refund that they get to me is not ethical at all. But that's what the federal government has authorized and that's been going on for a long time. Like I remember years ago when I was working a part-time job in college is when I was working at the laundromat. I worked with this one girl, she was not very nice, but she was a good worker. And um she she would get these weird phone calls. Sometimes our our shifts would overlap. and I would answer the phone because she would usually be trying to wrap up and I would be showing up and just starting my shift. So when she was trying to wrap up with whatever she needed to do at the laundromat, which was usually cleaning or counting her till or things like that, sometimes she would get really weird phone calls. And so I take the name and number, I'd be like, "You know, she's busy because I 
we did not ever want to stop what someone else was doing to take a phone call unless it was an emergency because we were a very busy laundromat. We had a lot of hard labor to do on top of counting our till and helping the clients and customers and and doing other people's laundry. Like we provide a really hectic service. A really good service, but it was a hectic environment, but super fun at the same time. And so I would just take these messages for her. And I'd give them to her and I'd say, "Hey, I'm not going to say her name to respect her privacy here, but I'd say, "Hey, so and so, these people called and uh they're saying you owe them money and this is what you owe." Like they went into all this detail about her personal business and I was shocked and her mouth would just drop at whatever I would tell her and she would just like the, the color from her face would just drain. I felt so sorry for her. And even though we didn't always get along, it was her attitude. She had an attitude problem. She had a chip on her shoulder. She was kind of mean. A good worker, but she she could be really mean. And I guess what happened was she had gone to school and she either dropped out or lost a job or something. I don't even know if she graduated, but she owed all this student loan debt. Well, whoever was her lender found out where she worked, like they stalked her. And then they started harassing her at work, and it was humiliating. Here she is working at a laundromat, not making good money. To me it was good money because I was part-time in college. Like I was full-time student working part-time. You know, jobs like working at a laundromat are great for people that you know that don't have families or that don't have a lot of a lot of um I was going to say not have a lot of business, but they don't have a lot of income or they they don't have a lot of bills. But she was a grown adult by this time. And she was having a hard time paying off her debt. Well, then I just remember she had this look of horror on her face when I t- when when I first told her about the message I got. And she just forever changed after that. And then I didn't see her much after that, and I'm pretty sure she quit and left so that so that she could go work elsewhere and just not be known because she was being harassed by her lender. And then one time I walked in, she was on the phone with them. And she knew I wasn't going to tell the owner because the owner wasn't nice. And I've already talked about the owner in a previous podcast, but um she was on the phone with the lender or I call him a bookie. And um they were being pretty horrible to her on the phone. I could just tell. You know, it's one of those things where you know you can tell a phone conversation isn't going very well just based on the tone of voice of the person speaking, their facial expression and what they're actually saying and also her body language. She was upset and she was very frustrated with these people. They were they were harassing her constantly. Once they found out where she worked, they harassed her at her job. And what we didn't know at the time cuz you know we're in our 20s, we didn't know that lenders and debt collectors, they cannot legally harass you like that. It's illegal, it's unlawful, but we didn't know that. So she felt trapped. and eventually she left and i just felt sorry for her because i mean i don't know how much money she made but i bet it wasn't much more than me even though she worked more hours i mean i'm just thinking like from an hourly wage point of view i bet it wasn't that good and so if someone is trying to hunt you down and shake you down for money and you know they can figure out that hey this person works at a laundromat they've probably got food, water and shelter to pay first. Maybe we should negotiate something with them. Or better yet, what I don't understand is why these lenders and um I call them also call them financial bounty hunters. Um 
I don't understand why they don't help poor people get better jobs because if they actually had better jobs they could probably pay off their debt and their loans in full but they don't care to help they just like to intimidate and frighten and scare people and this is a young woman that went to college i mean she was like kind of a rough individual she was she was tough as nails way tougher than me i mean i i give her street cred for that she was super tough like she's the kind of person that if you were going to have to be in a fight you you know that if you had her on your team you would totally beat whoever you were fighting like like if you were going to the state fair and you got jumped in the parking lot there's no way they they would they would be able to whoop up on us because i guarantee you she could whoop anybody like that's how tough she was she was really rough like didn't wear makeup i mean just didn't really care to fix her hair great employee but she was not prissy in any way she was very rough around the edges but when i saw the color drain from her face that scared me because i had never seen her look fearful before because ordinarily she's a very confident woman and very tough and gruff and after that she wasn't tough and gruff anymore they scared her and they intimidated her so whenever i hear that different organizations are trying to help students i raise my eyebrows and i go really really considering what all has been going on for decades and people have not wanted to address it i think senator elizabeth warren has been trying to address it like i i'm not a democrat but i am impressed with her cuz she's actually been calling people out on the shadiness that's been going on in the student loan industry and also what's been going on in the department of education and then some of these colleges and how they run their business because colleges they're supposed to be an institution of education they're not supposed to act like a financial institution those are two totally different industries because technically colleges are supposed to be public sector jobs not private sector but unfortunately they try and act like a bank or they try and act like a, a corporation And and that's not the same industry. I'm not against banks, I'm not against corporations, but when they start acting like one, then they should be held accountable like one. That's my personal opinion because I I've seen what they have done to people and ruining their their credit score, which absolutely sucks because whenever these students, I don't care what their age is, I don't care if they dropped out or if they graduate, but here's the thing. When you ruin their credit score, it makes it almost impossible for them to find a place to live and to get a really good job because i've noticed over the years the higher the paying the job is the more likely the employer is to run a credit check on you and if you have horrible credit you may lose the opportunity just based on a stupid number score like credit scores are not equivalent to character but there are so many people that run a credit check to judge somebody. I think that is wrong. I think it should be illegal and unlawful because credit scores here's the thing. I don't know what you know about this, but I've learned this the hard way. People can report stuff on your credit even if it's not true just by the mere fact of having your social security number or your date of birth or maybe even where you live and your name like as long as they have some type of data on you, they can report whatever they want about you. to the credit bureaus and it doesn't even have to be true and that happened to me 
And what sucks is that when something, well, regardless of whether it's true or not, but especially if it's false, when it shows up on your credit report, a lot of times you don't know that's on there until someone tells you or unless you run your credit once a year. Like typically I run my credit once a year. It's usually at the beginning of the year. And if I see something on there that I don't know what it is or if it's fraudulent or I don't agree with it or I literally have no clue what it is, I, I contest it. I wish everybody did that. But what sucks is that there are a lot of employers that they kind of get snobby. It's like they only want to hire people with really high credit scores. Well, here's the thing. That creates poverty and lack. That forces people into poverty. A bad credit score is not equivalent to moral character. But unfortunately, what people are doing when it comes to looking for jobs the employers and the managers a lot of them are using people's credit score to determine whether or not they are worthy of earning a good living well you know what if someone has a horrible credit score and they owe a lot of debt especially you know student loan debt why not hire them for a job that pays 150k a year if they're qualified if they're educated and have the skill set why not hire them for a super high paying job that way they would be able to pay off all their debt but unfortunately credit scores are seen as debt scores it's not really a credit it's seen as debt and anyone can report anything about you it doesn't even have to be true and that happened to me an employer uh, didn't hire me for a job and when i don't get hired i typically ask why unless they tell me why in the beginning or at some point but if they don't tell me why i ask them And most of the time employers won't tell you why they didn't choose you and I really wish they would tell the the applicant and the candidate why. Well there was one particular employer that they told me why they did not hire me and they said it's because your credit. I was like, "Well, what about my credit?" So they mentioned all the stuff on there. I was like, "I have no I have like I have no clue what that is." I literally have no idea what you're talking about. I was like, "I maybe check my credit once a year." And if I don't know what something is, I can test it and I I move on. Like I I still need a job. I still need to work. And this is a good high-paying job, something I was qualified for, but if I had had like perfect credit, I would have gotten the job. But because I didn't have perfect credit or great credit at the time, somebody else got the job I should have had. Because the employer viewed my credit score as a determining factor on whether or not I could perform the job or not. and they deemed me as not having good character and not having good standards and i thought you know that really shows me that it's the employer in that situation that did not have good character and did not have good moral standing because who are they to judge me like like who are they to to throw me away because of something on my credit score on my credit report or whatever like all they did was basically give people permission to still ruin my credit as opposed to giving me a chance to earn a really good living and pay stuff off or actually go get an attorney to fight some things see it it creates income uh, income inequality it technically is a form of discrimination like i don't think employers should ever be allowed to run a credit report background check sure crime stuff sure you know felonies misdemeanor sure look that up but in terms of running someone's credit report 
I can't think of a job where that's actually relevant. Maybe the banking industry, but even then, if someone's expertise is in banking and, and they, you know, let's say for example, their spouse got really sick and they had to foreclose on their house because they lost everything because all their money went towards saving their spouse's life. Then how is that an example of to turn someone away from a really good job or to prevent them from being promoted? That's another thing that employers do. Sometimes they will run a, an employee's credit to determine whether or not they should be promoted or get a raise. A person's credit score has nothing to do with their job. As long as someone is showing up to work and they're doing a good job, that that's what matters. Like, I mean, I've been a manager. I could care less if someone has a, a 200 credit score. That's their problem. That's their private life. That has nothing to do with them showing up to work on time, doing a really good job and trying to earn a living. And so that way they can provide for themselves and their family and have access to food, water and shelter and also build up a nest egg. You know, even if someone has horrible credit or horrible debt, they should still have the opportunity to contribute into a 401k. But there are some people Usually very hateful, money-grabbing people think that, well, if you have debt, you shouldn't be putting anything into savings. You should just pay everything off. That's not true. Should you pay things off? Yes, but you should also put some money aside for yourself. Especially the larger your debt is. Because if all you're ever doing is just paying off debt, paying off debt and you're never putting money aside, You don't have a rainy you don't have a rainy day fund and then you're not building a nest egg to retire so then it's looking like you will never be able to retire. Like there's a lot of jaded stuff that goes on in the financial industry, the banking industry and the student loan industry. As well in the uh, I, I don't know if I would call it the job applicant industry but just sometimes employers are stupid. And I'm just like, you know, when you don't hire someone because of their credit score, you are shaming someone. And who are you to judge them? That's how I look at it. Cuz you know what? I've had great credit and I've had bad credit and everything in between. And most of the time I had no idea what my credit score was cuz you know why? I was busy working. I was busy earning a living. That's that's what most people are doing. Most people are just busy trying to keep their head above water, provide for themselves, their families, stay happy, healthy and whole and, and you know, not get sick. But there are just some things that people use against other people and it's wrong. I know that's a bit of a tangent, but it does go into public school systems here because some of these colleges are public schools. and they're ruining these kids credit. And then they've got people that act like loan sharks to go after these students. See, here's the thing, they act like they love you just to get you to enroll and to get your money. But then the moment you have a hardship happen, they throw you under the bus. They they act like a bookie at a racetrack. And it's it's just so disgraceful. So a lot of things need to change in regards to that. So just because someone says they cares about just because someone says they care about students, I don't always believe it. 
Because I've seen the other side of that, like firsthand, and it's it's been horrible. So it says here, this is talking about the retirement benefits. It says the first step was to secure retirement benefits for custodians throughout the state. In 1928, just a year after CSEA formed, the union helped push through SB 551, which allowed school districts to establish retirement benefits for all school employees, not just teachers. Now that I that I agree with. Cuz I think everybody should have an opportunity to have access to retirement benefits. More importantly, it became the first law in the books recognizing school employees other than teachers and administrators. Total members are today members feel the legacy of CSEA's request for a pension under the California Public Employees Retirement System. Classified employees enjoy some of the best retirement benefits in the country. In 1999, CSEA helped pass SB 400, landmark, sorry, landmark legislation that dramatically increased classified employees' retirement income. Now here's the thing. I'm all for people getting more retirement income. but when you're dealing with the public sector the only way you're going to be able to do that is to increase taxes drastically and to tax more people because the public sector is one of the is is the sector that doesn't create wealth that's the private sector so if they want more retirement i get very concerned with that or they want more retirement income i get very concerned because that may not be possible just based on the market and taxation and people's wages because the way that they are able to pay for retirement income packages is to take money from people that are working meaning like you and me and they take it out of people's paychecks like a federal tax or a state tax and right now California's tax situation is really bad so i bet if i had to guess the problem in California right now goes back a long time So that says in 1929 when California and the rest of the country plunged into the Great Depression, CSEA was put to the test. Workers became plentiful and jobs grew scarce. For classified employees known at the time simply as non-certified workers, the depression meant an increase in their workday up to 12 hours per day, 6 days a week, with wages as low as taxpayers could get them. It wasn't long before poor school districts began trimming budgets and classified jobs. At the union's 1933 conference, Dr. Frank Hart addressed delegates, quote, "Better trained custodians would save districts far more than their cost," he explained. "Custodians themselves would have to raise their standards if they ever hoped to raise their pay." It was a challenge that classified employees were ready to meet, and thus began CSEA's next crusade, professional growth. For seven decades, CSEA has prided itself on creating job training opportunities for its members. A member survey in 2000 found that 67% of CSEA members believe that improving professional growth opportunities is very important. I agree with that because knowledge is power. CSEA is working to meet the needs of its members by negotiating career ladders and incentive programs and by offering scholarships and career grants. I'm all for that. If someone can be more educated and make more money in the long run and the short run, I say go for it. As long as it's affordable. It says in the years following World War II, CSEA established itself as an important part of the education community. In just 10 years, membership shot up from 1,400 members to nearly 10,000. Having found strength in numbers, CSEA was ready for an astounding run on the legislature. That concerns me because they are not supposed to be manipulating legislation. 
Because legislation belongs to everybody, regardless of whether they are in a union or not. The union demanded that basic rights and benefits, which had been enjoyed by teachers for years, should finally be extended to classified employees. Among the bills that passed were the 40-hour work week, I agree with that, sick leave, I agree with that, vacation and bereavement leave, I agree with that, and laws prohibiting age discrimination, I agree with that as well. I think all those things are great that they're talking about. This historic achievement for CSEA later became known as the Classified Bill of Rights. Now, I don't agree with that title because they're basically trying to take the goodness of the Bill of Rights and they're just trying to steal that name and that title to prop themselves up. I think that's wrong. I think they should have called it something else. Classified employees who had long considered themselves partners in education were finally getting some of the recognition they deserved. Here's the thing, they think they deserve stuff. That's not how it's supposed to be. You don't deserve something, you earn it. There's a difference in that mentality. Once CSEA passed the classified bill of rights, it never looked back. The union pressed on to secure paid holidays, salary increases for reclassified positions, salary protections for instructional aides, the right to unemployment insurance, collective bargaining rights, workplace safety measures, and improved pension benefits. CSEA members also worked to defeat many harmful proposals including school vouchers, pension raids and cuts and education funding. Here's the thing. School vouchers, if I'm not mistaken, this is in regards to people being able to to enroll their kids wherever they want. Unfortunately, when you're dealing with the public school system, the public school system, even if you don't like the school that you live near or maybe it's a bad school, in the public school system, public school teachers and public school administrators think that they have more rights to your kids than you do. So even if you want to send your kid to a better school, they try and eliminate the parent from being able to send their kid where they want to send them. Because they think they have full charge over your child once it reaches a certain age, and that's not true. Another thing is it says here pension raids and cuts in education funding. Okay, education jobs are funded by the public, meaning it's a public job. It's a public sector job, meaning it's funded by taxes. If you don't have the taxes, then guess what? You're not going to get paid those cushy benefits. We've seen that in USPS. We've seen that in uh the auto workers which they weren't public sector, they were private. But my point is this, when there's a problem with lack of funds, guess what? You've got to make cuts somewhere. And that's just that's just how it is. If you don't like that happening, get a different job, go work in the private sector. And that's what a lot of people have done. And then, and they 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 cry victim or they they cry wolf all the time. It's like, look, nobody likes their your pensions being cut and things like that, but it's different when you're dealing with the public sector because you're dealing with tax dollars. And that's one reason why the the tax hikes are so bad in California is because they're overspending, overspending especially on property tax. How are worth this? Like they raise property tax to make up for all the money that they're overspending on all these other programs. And that's why a lot of people are leaving California is because they can't afford to live there anymore. It's not affordable. And that's a huge problem because California is a beautiful state. It should be affordable. If anything, property tax should not be over 10%. And property tax should only be paid one time, and that's when you actually buy a home. But unfortunately, property tax has become this very shady way that the federal government and or state government, depending on how the monies are used, it's how the government tries to get money out of people. 
and they just use and abuse that system because people can't fight a tax. That's why they raise the hike on it. That's why they raise the rates on taxes is because people can't fight a tax because it's set by the government. When unfortunately, whenever taxes go up in terms of the rate, actually less money is collected because less people can afford to pay it. So they either end up not buying whatever they were going to buy or they move. It you here's the thing. They actually did a study with the on the federal government and the IRS and they found that when tax rates are lower, the IRS brought in way more money because more people were able to work. And the reason why more people were able to work was because more people had jobs. The reason why more people had jobs, and I'm talking about the private sector in regards to this, the reason why more people had jobs was because rich people had more money to employ people. And the reason why was because they opened more businesses. But if taxes go up, hardly anybody can do what they really want to do or need to do to stay alive and to help other people. That's the problem. And that trickles over into the public sector. So whenever tax hikes go up on all citizens, it depletes the private sector of its profitability. And then people don't spend as much money. Well, if people don't spend as much money, guess what? Not as many taxes are going to be collected. And that that's the problem with high taxation. I am all for taxes. Everybody should pay taxes. I think taxes are a great way to stabilize, not necessarily stabilize your country, but protect your country with the military and also redo your infrastructure. There are things that we need to do with tax dollars. But the problem is that some people they think that because they they like taxes that they should just increase it and have whatever rate they want. That's not right. Because if you have too high of a tax rate, it actually depletes your economy of its stability to provide jobs and monies for people. And it also affects the banking industry. It also affects Wall Street, so no one is immune from the effects of high taxation. So it is a problem. So it goes on to say by the 1960s, CSEA had established itself as an important organization in the education community. However, for all of its strength in representing classified employees at the state level, the union still lacked the teeth it needed at the local level, namely at the bargaining table. Collective bargaining was still a decade away, and workers were at the mercy of their employer. Oh no, those employers—they're already trying to make employers all of them look bad, and they're not all bad. Under the Winton Act, employees would meet and confer with district officials to discuss salaries and wages. Classified employees simply referred to it as meet and beg. Job security was a matter of how much your boss liked you. I don't agree with that. There may be a small percentage of that, but that's not always true. It's really supply and demand and how much can they afford to pay you because you're dealing with private sorry you're dealing with public sector jobs and tax dollars. It's completely different than the than the private sector. Just 5.7% of CSEA members surveyed in 1971 felt satisfied with their level of job security compared to 89% surveyed in 2000. Okay. Okay. Here's the thing. I was born in 84, so I don't know anything I I shouldn't say anything. I don't know everything there is to know about the 70s, but what I do know is that the 70s were a really tough time for the United States, especially our economy. We had a a, a gas shortage because of OPEC. Um we had shortages in other ways. We were still having to deal with Jimmy Carter and I can't remember what year he was president because I wasn't alive yet, but he really ruined our country. He was one of the worst presidents we have ever had. 
he, he was horrible. Um, he's a peanut farmer that did not understand the economy. Um, he, he was a kind of a semi-liberal Democrat when he ran. And one of the messages that he gave America, it was in the winter, and he said, well, we're all going to have to cut back, and he had a sweater on. And he told people that to save money, they should wear sweaters. And people were, were experiencing cold and hardship because of uh, oil and fuel crisis. And here's the thing. If your house is heated by gas and we're having a gas crisis, guess what? You're going to be freezing cold, and that's what was happening in some of the parts of the United States because of this. So the 1970s were hard hit by everybody. It wasn't just the public sector, and it wasn't just these members. The entire United States had a hard time with, uh, with the 1970s. So it's important to take into account what actually was going on within the entire country, not just one sector. And, of course, things are going to be better in the year 2000 because our economy is more greatly improved. I mean, Jimmy Carter, he ruined a lot of things. And it took several years, probably at least a couple of decades, to repair what he did because he was a horrible president both nationally and internationally. On the international stage, he was a complete joke. And, you know, in terms of running the United States, he was horrible at it. It was so bad. And not every Democrat is bad at running things, but he was really bad. He was totally incompetent and was not prepared. It goes on to say, when signed into law in 1975, the Rota Act ended the days of meat and veg bargaining. Collective bargaining was a coming of age for CSEA, then 70,000 members strong. It gave the union power to negotiate at the bargaining table and to represent employees under the full strength of the new labor laws. Now, I don't know if you know uh, the name Rota, but when I first read this article, I busted out laughing because Rota is the name of the evil child from the 1950s thriller movie, The Bad Seed. So if you want to scare yourself before going to bed, watch The Bad Seed. It's a really good 1950s film about a murderous little, little girl. And it's really creepy. It's really well done. But when I saw the Rota Act in this, I was like, I bet they wish they had named it something else. Not after that little girl. But it says here, today, CSEA employs nearly 300 full-time staff members to help its member-run chapters negotiate top-notch contracts with good pay and benefits for classified employees. Now, that I'm okay with because whenever you're dealing with a contract and you're, you're doing negotiations – You want someone that knows what they're talking about. I don't blame them for that. So God bless them. I think that's a great thing. It says here, the longest public employee strike in California's history took place in Pittsburgh. From September 30th to October 30th, 1981, almost 300 classified employees at Pittsburgh United or Unified School District in West Contra Costa County walked the picket lines. Led by local president Rosemary DiMaggio and Chief Steward Rose Greenup, The members of California School Employees Association, Chapter 44, walked out when negotiations for a new contract broke down. So that's what I'm talking about. They walk out, but it's the students that suffer. They're not getting educated. So obviously they don't really care. It's just about money. It's just about them. The previous year, their counterparts in Chapter 85 at neighboring Antioch School District had gone out for nine days. Again, people not doing their job. And tensions had been brewing in Pittsburgh for some time. So it was no surprise when the bus drivers, custodians, teachers' aides, food service workers, clerical staff, and library assistants hit, hit the bricks. So basically, no one really wanted to go to work, but they expected to get paid. You know, when you and I walk out on our jobs, we, we don't really 
No one has the right to demand wages when you don't do the work, but it'd be like if we walked out, we would just be fired. The employer would just like, "Okay, bye." You know, you had a job, but you walked out. So, it's kind of one of those things. They they think that they're special. They're not. They're no different than the rest of us. A job is a job. Just do the job. If you don't like it, work in a different job. Work in the private sector. You know, apply for a higher paying bracket of pay. That's all you do. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what a smart person does. You don't try and bully people into paying you just a little bit more to do the same job. It doesn't make sense. The district had been battling its staff battling, that's interesting. The district had been battling its staff annually over summer layoffs and this coupled with the pay um equity concept in vogue at the time, comparable worth is what it was entitled, came to a boil when their contract expired in, in the summer of 81. Now here's the thing. When you're off in the summer, you shouldn't get paid because you're not working. Like what what people don't understand is that when when teachers are paid, they're paid to not work in the summer. I don't agree with that because if you're not there doing a job, you're not doing it. But however, teachers are paid for the entire school year even though they're not teaching the entire year. So, it's almost like they're they're paid how were this like they get paid even when they're not working in the summer and then the summer is when they go on vacation. So it's it's almost like they're double dipping on vacation pay. The rest of us can't do that, but they do it. It's not right. It's totally not right. It says right in the middle of the strike an election for three new school board members occurred. I bet that was interesting. As well as walking picket lines daily, members endorsed incumbent Joe Cancia Mila, now a member of the state assembly and newcomer Dana Hunt a county sheriff and union member. Oh, that's all you need is a county sheriff with this. Their election was pivotal in settling a strike that gained a contract with wage increases that exceed the state cost of living adjustment. That concerns me right there because that's too high. That's causing inflation. But because they're greedy, they don't care. So it goes on to say, uh they gained a contract with wage increases that exceeded the state cost of living adjustment. redressed imbalances in the male female hourly rate inequities and provided layoff protections for summer workers. Here's the thing, when you're laid off, you're laid off. It's it's the summer. Get over it. Get a different job. No other public sector workers have ever had to strike for so long before or since. For decades, California had enjoyed full funding for its schools and unique educational programs, meaning they are probably this is probably a precursor to them spending too much money. Then in 1978, California voters approved Proposition 13, an attempt to cut property taxes. It was already high back then. That's sad. The state's public school system and its employees would never be the same. By 1995, California plummeted from fifth in the country to 40th in school spending. Well, that means you were overspending. That's the thing. Classified employees who had finally gotten a piece of the pie through collective bargaining. found that there just wasn't much to go around. Well, gee, that has to do with tax dollars. Many school programs such as music, art, and, and athletics simply vanished. I don't believe that. They always have have an athletic team and an art and music department. I don't believe this stuff just vanished. I don't believe this. And school districts either transferred classified employees working in those programs or laid them off. By the late 1980s, schools, parents, and even some of the voters who passed Proposition 13 were tired of the funding shortfalls. I bet what happened was teachers went on strike and they bullied or convinced students and parents to reverse that proposition because they wanted the money. 
They cry wolf just to, just to get money. That's what happens. The California Teachers Association, CTA, along with CSEA and other members of the education community, led the charge, see what I mean, for a second ballot initiative. In 1988, Proposition 98 was passed to guarantee a minimum level of state funding for public schools. It is a complicated formula. At times, politicians have manipulated it, but it stabilized revenue for the state's public schools. What that tells me is that they wanted the status quo back. They did, they did not want to be held accountable for how much they were spending. So instead of addressing their overspending, they just wanted more money. which is one reason why property tax has gone up tremendously in California and why so many people have been leaving for years and coming to Oklahoma. That is really disturbing. Safety has also been a long-standing priority among classified employees. I don't believe that. But it had never been the large-scale concern that it became during the 1980s, asbestos scare. So they're more concerned about asbestos than school shootings. That's what that tells me. So it goes on to say asbestos, a flaky white mineral, had been widely used in school construction between 1945 and 73 on ceilings and as an insulator for pipes and boilers. It wasn't just in schools. It was used everywhere. It was used everywhere. It was common to use it. So it wasn't just in schools. Everybody was trying to get away from the use of, of uh, asbestos once they figured out the, the harm of it. Then in 1982, the Environmental Protection Agency ordered schools to be inspected for this cancer-causing substance. An initial survey by the California Department of Education found that nearly half of the state's school facilities contained friable or easily crumbled asbestos in gyms, hallways, boiler rooms, and classrooms. Maintenance workers, custodians, and all school employees felt at risk. What about the students? See, that's the thing. They don't care about the students. If the workers are being exposed to asbestos, so are people's kids that are attending there. Like, this is what... is so irritating at times about some of these unions, especially these teachers' unions and unions that deal with the education system. They value themselves more than the students they are supposed to teach and protect. That is a problem. That is a huge problem because if it wasn't for the students, they wouldn't have jobs. Because the way these schools get monies is it's based on how many students are attending your school and then that's how many, I guess you would say, that's how much in tax funds you get. It's based on per student. that attends that school, which is why the public school system doesn't want parents taking their kids out of public schools and doing the voucher program because the schools want control of the tax dollars. They don't think the parents should have any say in it, even though it's the parent that has been paying the tax dollars. See, that's corruption, big time. CSEA successfully lobbied the legislature, that's, that's concerning, to issue safety guidelines for school employees dealing with asbestos and its removal from school buildings. Since 1982, the State Department of Education has been required to distribute information to all districts regarding the safe handling, storage, cleanup, and disposal of all toxic substances found on school grounds. By 1984, cash-strapped districts had already spent $160 million on asbestos cleanup, and they had only begun to address the problem. See, that's what happens when you put the government in charge of stuff. They don't do it right, and they overspend. There are companies that specialize in the removal of asbestos, and this school district can't figure out how to go out and hire one and get them to, to remove it quickly, safely, and efficiently, and for a good dollar amount. 
Like that's how dumb governments can be sometimes, especially when you're dealing with the Department of Education. The Department of Education is a bureaucracy. And that's a problem because they overspend and they don't ever want to be held accountable for what they do wrong. It says here though the worst sites have been taken care of, asbestos removal in our public schools continues to this day. Well, whose fault is that? It's the schools. If you want to get rid of the asbestos, get rid of it. And find a way to do it. But they don't know how. See, that's the thing. What 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 I don't understand about our government, whether it's federal or state, is that they don't know how to reach out to the private sector and get bids from companies in the private sector that specialize in that industry and get the job done quickly. An example of this are um gosh, what's it called? Super fun sites. Okay, so super fun sites. And I don't mean fun, I mean fun, F U N D. These are toxic, almost like nuclear sites um within the United States where people cannot live and if there are animals that have been exposed to chemicals there, they can never leave that area. Well, these are sites that the federal government doesn't want you to know about and they're supposed to clean up, but they still haven't done it. So I encourage you to look that up. See, the federal government needs to be hiring companies from the private sector that know what they're doing to handle the job but they don't what they do is they create a state agency or a quote unquote federal agency it's just another bureaucracy and they totally mismanage funds and they never get the job done we still have we still have a super fun site in uh in Oklahoma and they actually had a documentary about it and here's the thing i didn't know we had a toxic semi nuclear waste site in Oklahoma until I went to college and had to take a class on uh it was how to give a presentation it was a upper division class that we had to take an upper elective class and the guy that taught our class he was really good he actually taught us how to conduct meetings in very stressful environments and he actually had to do that in regards to this super fun site because this town was just destroyed by by this toxic stuff and plus it was affecting their children like if you drank the water and you were pregnant it could cause your child to be semi down syndrome or your kid would not be very smart like the reading level of these kids that were exposed to these toxic substances in this town their reading levels were far below national average of what was considered acceptable reading level and also a lot of those kids that were exposed to that A lot of them died in their 30s, 40s and 50s from really weird cancers. And they died at a very high rate. And yet the federal government has not taken care of that site. Still, I mean, I'm guessing still to this day, but this was back in 2012 when I took this class. So it's kind of like that was just in 2012 and the federal government still had not addressed that issue. So, go figure. So then it says It talks about the technology and that, you know, computers were brought into the schools and it helped them out and all that stuff. It says here, moving on to um CSEA joins the AFL-CIO. It says at CSEA's annual conference in 2001, delegates voted to become an independently chartered union of the AFL-CIO. Under the charter, CSEA retained its constitution and bylaws without outside control by the AFL-CIO. Members gained access to new discounts and benefits 
through the AFL-CIO's Union Plus program. More significantly, the independent charter gave CSE members the power and clout that comes from combining CSEA's strength with that of more than 13 million other AFL-CIO members. That's very concerning because 13 million people, that is, um, that's a large population. And it would be hard to, to fight someone that has that many members. Because you have to remember that they try and affect and manipulate legislation. And legislation does not belong to unions. It belongs to the American people, which means all of us. Then it says, three years after joining the national AFL-CIO, CSEA joined the statewide California Labor Federation, also known as CLF, in 2004. The CLF represents 2.1 million workers and more than 1,300 affiliated unions. That's very concerning that they have that many workers that they uh, help or deal with, but it is what it is. So um, anyway, that is that lovely labor union, and again, that's the California School Employees Association, a very interesting one. The next one will be the Communication Workers of America or the Association of Flight Attendants, because both of those sound familiar, but it might be because they are under another union's umbrella. So, but until next time, I pray that you're happy, healthy, and whole, that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Wait.